Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're discussing how we can heal and find joy in times of isolation, grief, sadness, and fear. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Michelle is an author, activist, spiritual teacher and practitioner, racial equity consultant and trainer and intuitive healer. Michelle teaches workshops and immersions and leads retreats and transformative experiences nationwide. As a dismantling racism educator, she has worked with many different organizations for over two decades. Michelle has written several books, including the one we'll be discussing today, We Heal Together, Rituals and Practice for Building Community and Connection. Michelle also has a podcast called Finding Refuge. You can find out more about Michelle's programs at her website, michellecjohnson.com. Again, michellecjohnson.com. You can find her on Facebook and on Instagram at Skill in Action. Skill in Action. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Michelle. I'm delighted you could join me today. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on the show again. I'm happy to be here. So before we begin our dialogue about healing and finding joy in difficult times, let's begin with a moment of contemplation, um, a yoga moment. Om. Let's begin by bringing our attention to our body just feeling our body in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, or driving, walking, just noticing our body, paying particular attention to the surfaces that support our weight. Where are our feet? Feeling that connection, connection with the ground beneath us, with the earth deeper beneath that, and then turning our attention to the breath, just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the coolness of the air in the nostrils as it comes in and the warmth of the breath as it passes back out through our nose. Just staying with the breath Resting here, in this moment, right here and right now. Here's something to contemplate, a quote from Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour. This is from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Divine power within us is always ready to express through us to bring healing and expand our horizons beyond what we believe possible. We need only to trust and cooperate with it. Be unabashedly hopeful for your life and the life of the world. Let the language of your faith in God speak with every hopeful word and every constructive action. Be unabashedly hopeful for your life and the life of the world. Let the language of your faith in God speak with every hopeful word and every constructive action. Om. Once again, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. 
Again, I'm delighted you could join me today to discuss your new book, We Heal Together, Rituals and Practices for Building Community and Connection. In spring, we had a discussion, a prior discussion about how radical friendships offer healing and transformation. And today in discussing your current book, we're gonna be talking about the need to build communities and connections in order to heal ourselves and the world. So let's start with the book. What led you to write this book at this time? Thank you for the um, opening centering and the quote and offering, and it very much connects to the themes in We Heal Together and why this book now. So We Heal Together came out in April of 2023 I finished writing it about a year prior to that. Um, and um, at the time was thinking about many, many things, including um, COVID-19, the um, pandemic, um, the um, some urgency around um, reconnection and moving forward, and also my own awareness that we needed to take time to recover from not only COVID-19, but all that emerged um, between 2020 and 2022, because that's when I, when I wrote the book. I would say that theme certainly continues on now um, around the desire for things to go back to, I'm putting this in the air quotes, normal, whatever that means, and the um, necessity um, you know, for us to really pay attention to what we've been through and moved through. And so I, I would say that's, that was the um, seed that um, led to this book. And in addition to those things, prior to COVID-19, I, um, um, I think it was about two years, a year and a half before COVID-19, I had a feeling from my ancestors that I would need to hold a space for grief and for healing and be exploring a connection between grief and liberation. And I wasn't sure why grief was like such a theme that kept coming through in my meditations and, and ancestry work. Um, and I did some work and uh, with a, um, a healer and a practitioner who led me through a visualization about what a space would look like uh, around healing and grief and liberation. And um, we spent some time dreaming that up. And um, I also felt called to create a summit on healing and liberation, which I interviewed all of the people who were part of it in 2019. And it launched in 2020 before I knew COVID was, was going to happen. Um, and the, focus of the summit was healing and community, which we heal together is really about that, um, how we come back together. So I would say that we heal together was stirring in my soul as a, in the form of a book was stirring in, in my soul for um, a few years before I actually sat and wrote a book proposal about it. And the timing felt spot on, like how do we come back together in community after our collective consciousness has shifted? because of an experience like a global pandemic or uprisings that happened globally that are, that are happening now as, as well. Um, I, I think to things that are related to, to what was unfolding in 2020 um, and patterns that continue to persist. And, and I also noticed at, in 2022 and as I was writing this, that um, I was, you know, when, when COVID happened, I moved all of my work online but I was starting to go back out and be in groups with people and facilitate in person. And I remember feeling like, I'm not sure people know how to be in community anymore. Like many of us were isolated for so long or had to change just our ways of being and relating and, and how we moved about our day. Right. And um, I remember feeling that awkwardness of like, do I sit close to someone do we all wear masks? Do half of us? And what if we don't all consent to that? You know, all the things I feel like we've had to learn how to negotiate and, and navigate that feel new, new to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember sitting with a question of, um, are, are we, do we understand 
one, the importance of coming into community and why we need one another. And of course, COVID illuminated that for many of us in questions about collective care. And then how do we do this when we are responding to something many of us have never experienced? And how do we, how do I speak to the friction? How do I speak to the awkwardness? Mm-hmm. How can we be in conversation about consent? So it's a long answer, but all of these things led me to really thinking about um, a body of work that would help um, support us and remind us that we belong to each other. And if we belong to each other, what what does this mean about how we are to each right. other, how we care for one another? Right. So that's a little about what led to to the book. No, I love that phrase. And I, I love that kind of slant of the book of this idea of we, we belong to each other um, is really is really lovely. Um, so can you say more? Because you touched on kind of both the individual need for healing, which I totally felt, I, I actually still feel like I'm kind of caught in a pandemic mindset, you know, in terms of, you know, the behaviors of, you know, like, just staying home <laughs> a lot more than we used to. It just kind of, you know, just it got to be the way my husband and I, you know, just sort of continued on. Although we have gone out and we have done trips, we've traveled, et cetera. And on both major trips that we took, of course, we, you know, want the first one, we both got COVID. The second one, only he got COVID. (laughs) So (laughs) it definitely is something that, you know, we need to, uh, we need to um, think about. Obviously I'm laughing, you know, now because, COVID for us was not that severe, which was really lucky. I know for a lot of people, it's not a laughing matter, you know, when they get COVID, they end up with long COVID or whatever. But anyway, I was going to ask you about this healing, this connection of healing of an individual and then healing in a community, healing of an individual in relationship to a community. Would you say more about that? Yes. um, Well, I'll share that. Um, you, you shared my bio and the work that I do. I was a clinical social worker for a long time, working one-to-one with clients in an office and also leading groups. And um, the difference in that one-to-one work and that group work, um, I think, began to, um, it, it sort of, you know, let me on to, to this idea that we actually heal in community. It's it's We're always in relationship with other beings um, and time, right? The past, what is unfolding now and the future. And in those group sessions, what I noticed is the resonance between people um, and the decrease in isolation because people were saying, me too, right? I experienced this too, or I feel this, or people were being witnessed and witnessing one another. And so I had many years of that experience, which which certainly happened in one-to-one work with clients, but I was witnessing and engaging and that's different than being in a group process. So I think that informed my practice and my way of thinking and orientation to community. I also grew up with a mother who was a special education teacher and cared for her children in her classroom um, in ways that I did not experience many other teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know she taught me about how you care for each other. and. It's not just about, for her, it wasn't just about the experience the child was having in the classroom. It was about everything for them, their home life. Did they have enough food? Did they have transportation? Um, she would, you know, they'd miss the bus and she would bring them home and feed them. And then I would get in the car with her and she'd take them home, right? So mm-hmm. I, I learned a lot about community from my mom as well and collective care. Um, and for me, this idea of there is individual healing work that I can do because there are individual, there are wounds that um, I have now and have healed from that are specific to individual traumas that I have experienced in my life. And this is likely true for other people. And I often think about the patterns of trauma and how they're not, they're not happening in isolation. Um, You know, um, violence is not happening in isolation to to one person. It's happening on many levels to many people in many ways and is institutionalized and there are cultural norms around it. And that's also the way that I think, and, and that has informed so much of my racial equity work as well and facilitation. And so while I might do things to, to heal myself individually, I'm, I am always in relationship with everyone and everything which means that there's some impact if I'm doing my healing work potentially on other people I'm in relationship with. And the same is true if others are are engaged in their healing work, right? There's going to be 
it's it's what you read at the beginning in in a way right when you offered the yoga moment and the the quote right we're always in relationship with everything and there is a ripple effect right so that's one thing and the other is um and i write about this and we healed together um we are always communing with the natural world with all beings and in my experience i was conditioned to believe that i um am separate from um, other individuals and beings and time and space. And so there's been this unlearning process of actually I'm in deep relationship. I'm not separate. And what does it mean? I mean, that's our spiritual crisis. Like we believe we're separate, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And that we're not in, you know, that's, that's the crisis and we're not. And so I think this right. communal healing to me speaks to a way that we've always been actually. And if we trace back, um, and look at how people lived in community and and the fact that we had to live in community to survive um that's i feel like we heal together is an invitation for us to remember that time and place and to return to some of the rituals and practices that are very ancient you know they're 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 quite old um and to remember that people were in community gathering around fire and engaging in ceremony and um, dreaming together um, to survive, right? Because they understood the deep relationship and connection and systems have separated from us, us from that, our belief systems, how we live in community, right? Like I don't necessarily need my neighbor, um, although I live in a community where we are in deep relationship with one another and care for each other, but, but I could live my life without ever saying hello to the person who lives next door to me. And that just, that's not how we've been, you know? Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a deep connection between the individual and the collective and they're, they're not separate at all. And so that's part of the practice and work that we need to move through is to recognize we are always in community with everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. So many thoughts you know, that I had as you were speaking. So, you know, one is, first of all, this is just so in line with yoga, with yoga principles. And course, in the United States, we say yoga, and most people are just thinking about postures, you know, the, they're thinking about the yoga magazine of the with the pretzel posture on the cover that they saw in the grocery store line. <laughs> but as you know, and, and as you really, you know, um, manifest in your book, it's really about oneness, you know, our oneness with everything Our, you know, that we really are, um, you know, we are really are uh, coming from one and the same um, source, that there's only one. And that we are part of it and everyone is part of it and we are connected and i agree with you that there is this cultural emphasis or cultural experience of loneliness which is such a huge thing um becoming more so i think but you know i remember even um my husband and i went to spain uh like in the 80s and it's a very communal culture there and i remember we were flying home after we had had these experiences, for example, of being out in a in a plaza, you know, in the central square of a town where everyone was there, every age group. So the little kids were playing. Maybe there was a soccer ball they were kicking around. The boyfriend and girlfriend were wandering around the fountain, you know, and talking with each other. The grandparents are on the benches. I mean, everyone, everyone was there. And I remember this feeling of coming back to the United States and we were flying and I, I was at, at um, uh, I think I was coming back to UCLA um, to do my residency. Anyway, um, we we were landing, and I just was we, it was so struck. Like the plane flew over, and all I could see was all these individual boxes, these individual boxes of these houses. And I was just struck how culturally it was just like so different. <laughs> it was just like representation to me. I mean, I'm sure Spaniards also live in you know individual homes, but there was just this feeling of like this this like lack of community. That was like a gut sense that I, you know, that I had when in coming back to the United States. So anyway, you really point to that and point to this idea of um, of ritual as a way that can also, you know, pull us together, which we'll talk more about in a bit. Um, you begin the book with some shared definitions, definitions for a shared language and then a list of assumptions. I really appreciated that you got that out, you know, right at the front. So why did you think that was important to begin with this, you know, shared definitions and these assumptions? Yeah, I love this question. And this is like the, it's become part of um, 
the, the formula of writing books because it's at the beginning of skill and action and finding refuge too. Um, and we healed together. And so um, one of my mentors and teachers um, specifically related to racial equity work um, long ago taught me about shared language and the importance of and shared understanding and the importance of developing some shared language right away so that we we know what we mean when we say certain things, particularly if we're gathering around a, um, a focused goal together, right, or um, gathering with an intended purpose that we have collectively agreed to. And so I found it to be helpful in my writing to begin there because um, it's an orientation to the work. It's an orientation to what I mean when I say healing and spirit and the divine and ritual. Um, it is um, a way to invite people into to my understanding. And, and then I think to be in a place of inquiry around their understanding of these terms, which are deeper than terms. They're part of our the experience we have. Um, and there are terms in there connected to um, blood memories and our ancestors and um, systems of oppression. And that's definitely infused and, in, in, you know, throughout We Heal Together um, because so much of what we're healing from are fractures that are systemic. And mm -hmm. so it feels important to um, right away say, this is, this is what I mean when I say these things. And, and as I said, to invite people into that space, I mean, it's, it feels like it's part of the foundation, right? Which then becomes part of the practice. Um, and, um, and, and the terms are infused throughout. And so that's why I began with the shared language to create some of that shared understanding. And then the assumptions are, are um, they're similar. Um, they're more my belief system about healing and the work that I do in the world. And they're not, they don't function like agreements. If anyone's been to a space where we've created some shared agreements, they're not that they're more, this is what I believe. Right. And people, it's, it's more for people to know, to inform them. It's not that they have to agree, but it will help them better understand the storytelling that I um, do. And we heal together. Right. And why I've emphasized certain parts of of healing or specific rituals or even the way that I've described how to set up a ritual um, if one's going to practice on their own or with someone else or in a group. I feel like the assumptions really speak speak to that. My worldview, my perspective um, as an offering and orientation. So that's why I began with shared language and assumptions. I wanted to point to one specific assumption that you point out, which I really appreciated. So you write, we are not broken. While many things need to be repaired in our world, we are not broken. We are whole. And part of our work toward collective liberation is remembering our collective wholeness and that we are interconnected with every other living being and the planet. I just love that remembering our collective wholeness and that we are interconnected with every other living being and the planet. I, I just found that very inspiring. Would you say more about that? Yeah. Um, I'm glad that it landed and you, and it inspired you. And um, I feel like there's such deep uh, messaging and, and socialization and conditioning that's focused on our brokenness <laughs> Um, and the assumption that we're not whole. And then like a, the system of capitalism is really built a, around that. So I need things to be whole, to feel whole, to fill this emptiness um, that is part of this human experience at different points in our lives. And this also has come from my many years as a clinical social worker of the amount of people who would come in and sit on the couch or in the chair and say they were broken. Mm. Um, and that never resonated with me. Um, I've certainly internalized messages about who I am based on the identities I embody and internalized shame and things like that. But the language of I am broken never, it never, it's, I, I don't, it's not a belief I hold about myself or others. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure in large part that is because of the strong messaging from my mother that I'm whole, that I'm enough. I mean, I got a lot of that messaging from her um, and I'm grateful for that. 
Um, and I was aware I'm living in a culture that is going to tell me I'm broken and I need something, right? Um, to consume things, to to be whole, to buy things, to be whole. And so I wanted to just, you know, in that assumption, right away address this um, and name my belief that what if we start from the belief that we're whole, yeah. right? And that we're actually in a process of remembering our wholeness, our interconnectedness, as the assumption speaks to. What if we begin there um, instead of I'm broken, Mm-hmm. That feels so different when I say it in my body, right? And yeah. um, and I think it lands with people differently. And and what opportunities are available when we start from um, this this practice and process of remembering we're whole? Um, and what does it call us into? Um, and and what does it mean about how we relate to self and others? So that's the place I wanted to. Um, begin from and dispel this myth that we're broken. There, there are things that do not work, <laughs> you know, and there are things that have uh, gone awry and there are things that are causing a lot of harm. Um, and, and there are systems that are doing things by design, right? And we, um, we are not broken. And so let's begin somewhere else is the invitation. Mm-hmm. No, I think maybe it, it meant so much to me because um, that's my tagline at the end of the show. Um, you know, remember you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Um, yeah. That's I say that in every episode, and it is my is my belief, and it's so grounded in the yoga tradition. You know that that at our core we are whole, um, and that is regardless of, you know, if you've. Um, gone through a process and, you know, had, you know, cancer of some sort and lost a body part or had an amputation, whatever, you know, we are still whole um, at the, at the soul level, you know, we are, we are, and we have always been and always will be whole. So I loved that you, that you started with that. In the introduction to the book, you talk about the importance to you of the Bhagavad Gita, which sits on top of your desk. Um, this is one of the foundational sacred texts in our tradition of Kriya Yoga. Would you say more about what the Bhagavad Gita then means to you in your approach to life and, and community, like in this book? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I love the Bhagavad Gita and have many translations of it. And um, I've weaved it into um, We Heal Together and, and some of the Yoga Sutras as well and teachings. And the Bhagavad Gita um, was introduced to me in in 2011, I think, um, by a friend. And um, when she introduced it to me, she was reading from it and read a few um, 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 verses from it. And I remember wondering, what is she reading from? Because I didn't know. And I remember it really struck me um, and that's actually the, what where skill in action came from. My first book because she read a verse about yoga, skill in action. Yeah. And then, yeah, and she read, "No effort is wasted, no gain reversed. Even a little of this practice will shelter you from sorrow," which is actually connected to finding refuge. My second book, um, and this this idea that if we are we are um, practicing our dharma um, and disciplined and and practice with rigor, that we can experience some shelter, some refuge amid the chaos and tumult in the world. Um, So it is a a text that um, I have um, been working with for many years and also um, really turned toward when um, COVID began, because I was trying to understand what was happening um, not that I could understand what was happening, but I was trying to, I think, in my human way, make sense of what was happening. Yeah. Um, and I just kept reading it um, every day, different parts of it to remind myself of the teachings in there, of um, the cosmic plan unfolding, of um, the importance of practice, um, of different practices as well, of devotion, Mm-hmm. Um, of what it means to stay on one's path mm-hmm. um, in service of something bigger than themselves. That's been a core teaching for me, and it's how I um, um, intend to show up in my life and space is, 
is how is this connected to something other than me because I'm in deep relationship with everyone and everything as I've named, which really I think speaks to we heal together as well, Mm -hmm. that we have each other, like this is what we have this moment and each other and what do we want to do? Which I also think for me relates to the Bhagavad Gita because there are decisions the, the warrior has to make in that space. And for so long, I've thought about the, um, the battlefield we are, I mean, some people quite literally, but we are, we are on, we are experiencing, we're responding to um, in all of the different ways um, because of systems of oppression, because of climate chaos and change, because of our conditioning and socialization. I mean, there are many things that are present in our context that can relate to the Bhagavad Gita and that battlefield um, and where there's alignment and integrity and where there's not. Um, within self and in relationship with others. So it's just, I I feel like, I mean, obviously it's a timeless text and the lessons um, from it, the teachings from it resonate with me so deeply. Um, And the, I think in particular during when, when I started to just, it was on my desk every day. And when I was reading it at the beginning of COVID and throughout um, the first year of COVID and, and beyond, um, it, it just felt like a balm for me and my heart. And I, um, it also provided some um, space or expansiveness because um, it allowed me to think about what is beyond what is happening right now. Yes. Yeah. You know, what's beyond what I can see or read or touch or the way I'm making sense of this. Um, I, I'm not discounting the like, Obviously, I mean, I've written a lot about this, the grief, the loss, any of that. Right. I'm just aware that there is something other than the relative truth. <laughs> right. And so yeah. as yoga teaches us. And so the I think at that moment, I was kind of like, and there's something else. This is happening. And there's something beyond this. I just trust that. Um, and that was really helpful for me. Oh, that's really lovely. And and I can't believe you actually quoted from my absolute favorite verse in the Bhagavad Gita, which is 240. Even a little bit of this practice removes great fear is the translation yes. that I like, but you, I think you translated it slightly different, but it's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. As a reminder to our listeners today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. She is the author of the book we're discussing today, We Heal Together, Rituals and Practice for Building Community and Connection. You can find out more about her work at her website, michellecjohnson.com. This website will be on our, the link will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list and receive our now recently begun monthly newsletter with highlights of prior episodes and some teachings about yoga. Also some notes about upcoming episodes that you can look forward to. Um, I I did want to touch back. You mentioned Patanjali's Yoga Sutras as well, and you you write in your book Patanjali's Yoga Sutras ask us to strive to strive to balance stira, effort, and sukha ease. So stira and sukha uh, to establish a good space. We must have healthy prana or life force. Acknowledging what we have lost individually and collectively breaks something free and releases um, in the body, spirit, and psyche. Releases prana. I think I got that transcribed a little wrong. Anyway, this allows our prana to flow freely in our body. So would you say more about that, about this idea of balancing effort and ease? Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember who first introduced this to me. Um, Effort and ease. It was many, many years ago. And um, I remember, I I don't know if they introduced it in the context of the yoga sutras or someone was teaching an asana class and was taught. I mean, it's happened to me many times in asana classes where people and meditation where people are talking about stira and sukha and the balance of the two. Um, and then of course, in my study and practice, I was introduced to the yoga sutras and, and where this comes from. And I've always really appreciated the, um, 
dynamic tension between effort and ease. Um, I came to it first in my body, right? Like holding a physical posture. And what does it mean to um, be disciplined and put in enough effort to feel um, what's going on, to build heat, to top us, right? That, that um, fiery energy or discipline or perseverance, what does it mean to invite some of that in while also inviting yourself into a state of ease? Because when one is over-efforting, um, or in my experience, when I over-effort, um, specifically in a physical posture, I tire out, I check out in my mind, I'm like no longer in, in the room, I'm not um, in that place of balance, which in, in my experience, yoga is about harmony, is about balance, is about peace, um, is about union um, of things that, that may seem like they're um, opposites, right, and more. It's about so many things. That's many people talk about it as union, and so that's been interesting too to explore between the tension between effort and ease, and the balance point between the two, and how that can create a a space of or a state of peace. Um, just playing with that. I haven't mastered that, but like playing with those energies. And so, if I do that in my physical body, what does that mean for me to do that in a conflict with someone? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, to find that um, um, effort, that steadiness, that groundedness, that um, the effort to listen, right, when someone is saying something that I may not agree with, right, that kind of, I've brought it into those spaces. And what does it mean to find an easeful posture when I am activated, when I am grabbed by something, um, when my nervous system has um, gone um, haywire and needs to reground. So there are many applications, all this to say, of effort and ease. And the specific space you're talking about in the book with this Yoga Sutra is about, one, the relationship between grief and liberation um, and the expression of grief and how when we don't um, express grief, it becomes stagnant in the body and impacts the ability for prana or life force to flow freely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when we engage in a process where we allow ourselves to grieve, um, and I would I would say we can do this individually, and I would invite people into it in, in community with one another, which is so much of what I've done, and we heal together. Um, and of course, I'm, I talk about joy, and we heal together as well, and and ancestors and ritual and the honeybees, many other things. But when we allow ourselves to process whatever emotions, grief, and whatever emotions are connected to it, um, we release that in a way. We move through it, um, which does allow energy to flow freely. And so that's the relationship for me that they're, and trauma works this way too, it can get stuck in the body. Um, So much so that people become immobilized, physically, emotionally, energetically, right? Um, And what does it mean if we have if if we have the support, right? Um, what does it mean to move through what needs to move through so that energy can flow through us freely, and we find that balance point between effort and ease? So mm-hmm. that's a little more context for for that. Mm-hmm. No, beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, I did want to mention a couple of things. So one is that um, you mentioned in your background as a licensed clinical social worker doing group work, and I wanted to mention that I practice primary care internal medicine, and I actually was involved in group visits as well, uh, group medical visits, which was something that my medical group was exper- was experimenting with. And it was interesting. Not everyone was open to it, but for the people who came, it was an amazing experience of healing, of being in community. So I would just underline that, that I think healing can, can really get uh, ramped up um, in a community, you know, kind of a setting. Um, so the other thing you really talk about in your book, and, and, and I want to flesh out a little bit because people may not really know what you're talking about. Um, one of the ways you uh, you talk about building community is through rituals. And I really enjoyed it. At first, I didn't know what you were talking about, but I really enjoyed the list of rituals that you gave from your childhood, which ranged from holidays, obviously like Christmas, Easter, Halloween, Thanksgiving. And then you talked about family cookouts where you you know had the same food. 
um, you know, at different 4th of July and Memorial Day, I think those kinds of things. And then rituals at school. I, I just didn't think of these things as rituals, you know, and so I wanted to sort of paint that as a background, you know, for listeners. So one of the rituals at school can include obviously saying the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, in the morning, that's our ritual. And then at church, and obviously there are rituals depending on your spiritual community that, you know, go along with, with, um, with attending a church or temple. Um, and I, I appreciated the definition of ritual given by your friend Shireen Colley, who you describe as a health and wellness coach and spiritual teacher and practitioner. And she defines ritual as an action performed by our body in connection with our spirit, which I don't know, there's something about the simplicity of that that I just really loved bringing, bringing the spirit in. So would you say more, I was one more thing I wanted to say is you talk about these caramel apples that you used to, I guess your mom used to make. Oh my gosh, my mouth was watering when you're describing those caramel apples and how you'd help her make them and stuff. Anyway, just the rituals that you had in your family. So um, would you say more about the importance of rituals in building community? Yeah, I love that. I've been thinking about caramel apples a lot. <laughs> it's fall. Fall, and I haven't made any, and I really want to make some because I have fond memories of um, doing that with my mom. And and I love what you shared about. Oh, I didn't think of these things as rituals, um, and they they really like everything you named. They were times I gathered with family, and we did the same thing that time of year. And I would say it was in connection with spirit because it was in connection with our ancestors. Um, there was laughter that was happening. We talked about all sorts of things. Um, there was prayer that happened at each, every one of those rituals, even though they we were practicing them outside of the context of, of our space of faith and church. But we practiced many rituals within church. And I love Shireen's definition of ritual as well and the link to spirit um and shireen is we've talked a lot about ritual and how one can be doing things with their their body that um, are disconnected from spirit um so moving in a rote way right um moving without intentionality um, going through without feeling what might be going on and so i'm naming this because i would invite people I think there are many rituals we move through and what if we connected intention to those rituals and, and got curious about the purpose of the rituals. Um, and then of course there are rituals that happen in the context of, of ceremony, like calling in the, the cardinal directions, right? Which is a ritual and practice and ceremony that is part of many lineages right um calling in the above and the below calling in ancestors working ele working with elemental energy also um, um cuts across cultures like there are many lineages connected to that and and um and, and by that just to you know clarify for people who may not know what you mean yeah. is you mean the five elements you know so you know so earth uh fire water air ether at least in the mm -hmm. yoga system those are the you know those are the five elements i know in in um, traditional chinese medicine i think there's a, it's a little bit different but many um many uh, traditions do have this five element you know approach and that you can i actually like the ritual that you had in the book about about building a little altar you know and having something represent each of those elements and and the above and below and that you can you can ex have an experience then of um, of your relationship to everything, that interconnectedness that we've talked about. I'm sorry to break yeah. it. I just wanted yeah. people to understand what you meant. I think that's great because I do assume sometimes people know that. And I think it's great to let people know what, what we're talking about, right? It's that shared understanding. And the thing, the ritual that you just mentioned um, with the altar and the elements, there's also a reminder these these energies elements are inside us too, right? right? We can yeah, sure. Our, I mean, our body is made up of those same, you know, of those same elements. Absolutely. Yeah, which I love. So it's it's it, to me no mistake then that we would be we would be calling that they're connected to the cardinal directions and that we'd be calling them in. And um, I feel like rituals like that, that, you know, an altar or gathering around a fire or gathering around food with intention and opening with a blessing um, and all of the different types of rituals and, and ceremonies or gathering to to invite in um, the new seasons, right? Um, um, moving through rituals, which there are some in the book focused on joy 
um, moving through rituals to remind us of our interconnectedness. All of these feel so um, important and um, some of them are playful as well. And some of them are to deepen our practice and understanding of the time and, and space we're moving through right now. And I feel like they're, they're, um, they can be easy, easeful ways to build community. Um, because in my experience with rituals, there's sometimes there's some talking, but often it, there's silence, there's reflection, there's listening to um, what's what's coming through from the quiet and the stillness in community with one another. Um, there are places to share and to speak and for those points of resonance. Um, so I love different types of rituals and would invite people to think about how you're already engaging in rituals and um, to bring some more intentionality to those. So part of what you write about in the book is um, the, the lack that many people feel to the rituals of their particular lineage, as well as how rituals from non-dominant cultures have been uh, appropriated, um, which I want to ask you more about in a minute, the cultural appropriation piece, but rituals you know, in general, in our in our commercial culture have been commercialized and monetized, removing the sacred, you know, from the ritual. And so for so many people, Christmas is no longer <laughs> the sacred, you know, approach of anything to do with any and, and there are other um, there are other um, religions and spiritual traditions that have other important holidays, you know, in December around that same time. But anyway, you know, I think that in this culture, everything kind of gets monetized and gets, um, you know, and, and, and we're put into that situation that you talked about, about how we feel that we're not whole because someone's trying to sell us something that's going to make us feel whole. Mm -hmm. um, but getting back to the part about how the lack of connection that one might feel to the rituals connected to their lineage. So how would someone go about then reconnecting uh, to that? And then in a minute, you know, I want to ask about, you know, um, I mean, I'm obviously part of the yoga tradition. I'm not from, you know, South Asia. Um, and, and so, you know, how do then people participate in those rituals that are that feel very meaningful and they have kind of a soul connection with and yet we don't want to culturally appropriate you know from those as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah um i actually i can I'll, I'll, i'm going to speak to both i can speak to the second part of it first which is that um there is quite a bit of information and we heal together about what cultural appropriation is and to your point, the way things have become commodified and taken from their source space, geographically, energetically, and then sold um, without um, an understanding of the depth of that practice or ritual or ceremony and um, the, the foundational understanding of what is this? Why are we doing this? And without reverence. I mean, I think for me, that's the biggest part of um, um, there are two parts of appropriation. There are many, but two that come to mind right now are there's a difference in as many of my teachers talk about and South Asian teachers talk about in relationship to yoga specifically because it is not, it, it didn't come from my people. The, the lineage I learned did not come from yeah. um, where I am from, right? And it's a, it is my spiritual practice, right? And a deep part of my practice. And so, often, yeah. And so I think about how do I honor this? How do I appreciate this culture um, and this practice? Um, what is my commitment to um, this practice? And how do I show I'm devoted to it? And who am I in relationship with? And who am I learning from? I think those are questions that relate to yoga, but any any other practice that we're, we're um, that's not, necessarily directly connected to our blood lineage. Who are we learning from? How do we acknowledge where things are from? Um, are we committed to this path? Is this a transactional relationship or a transformational relationship yeah. with a with a practice? Um, so that's, you know, there's more, but that's what I'll, I'll offer about that. How are we how are we giving back to where this practice is from and and being humble and practicing with reverence. And I also I'm a black person in America, I can only trace so far back <laughs> in my lineage right. to practices. I have some information, 
And, and this is true for other people with different backgrounds for many reasons. And so I really understand um, the, the um, emptiness that people can feel. I felt that myself or the lack of information. And then the like, I don't know what to practice, right? Um, and there's some information about ancestors and we heal together and in my other work. Um, and what I would invite people if they can and have the resources, meaning they have the people they can ask, gather some information about where you're from. If you can do that, it's not possible for everyone. Um, if you're able to gather some information, perhaps you can do some research or gather information about rituals and practices connected to your lineage as far back as you can trace it. I also think there are ways we can access our ancestors, even if they are no longer in the earthly realm to invite them to share with us, um, to be in relationship with us um, and their practices. And there's one ritual in We Heal Together focused on ancestry in that way, um, that we can, we can call on the healthy and well ancestors to share uh, rituals and practices with us and to share information so we can learn more about where we're from. Um, and if, if that is not accessible, again, what I'll go back to is if we're practicing something that's not directly connected to our lineage, how are we practicing it? Why? And what is our commitment to the practice? Is what I would say. But I also offer and we heal together. I'm drawn to certain foods, certain music, certain types of movement, certain landscapes where I feel like, oh, I'm at home or there's there's some deep resonance with this land. What is it? And those to me feel like um cues and indicators that maybe this is connected to my lineage in some way right maybe the dirt that is underneath my feet is similar to the dirt that was underneath my um, ancestors long ago right maybe it felt the same or maybe the the foods i'm drawn to why do i like that why do i want this right right now um <laughs> you know it's, so, it's funny because i was craving like uh fish and chips or something a year ago <laughs> And I had just done 23 and me and I got um my lineage back and I'm 20% Irish. I kept being like, why why do I want this food? I never want this food. I was telling my partner, and he was like, We'll make it tomorrow. And then I got the 23 and me that day and I was like, Oh, this is fascinating. Um, that's just a silly example, but it was a like right, right, yeah. not my West African lineage that's mm -hmm. coming through right now. This is something else. So like I want to invite people to listen to those things, yeah. right? And like be curious about what they might mean. Um, so that's what I'll what I'll offer. You um share you you mentioned honeybees earlier today. And there's a little quote that I was going to share, um, which I thought was really lovely. And then a story that you told about um, about the uh, honeybee um, yeah, that was in the hive um, that, you know, you um, brought inside. I'll, I'll just say there. So let me just read this quote. Just as the honeybees remind us of our interdependence and interconnectedness, yoga and spiritual practice affirm this reality as well. The Bhagavad Gita calls us into recognizing our intimate connection to all beings, the whole universe, eternal realms that are beyond our manifest universe and our own beings capacity to love. It calls us into remembering our connection with one another instead of perpetuating our own suffering by believing we are separate. And honeybees are in a very communal culture. So would you share the story? that you shared in the epilogue about the honeybees. Yeah, um, I um, was, it was, it was October, which for honeybees where I live in North Carolina can be a time where they're preparing for winter and they need to make sure they have enough resources. That's the short of it. And what can happen at different at that time of year, and there's some other times of year it can happen too, but it can happen in the fall is that Bees from other hives will come to um, hives that, like that I have. This is what happened. And they will steal honey um, and rob a hive because they want to have enough resources for winter. So there's this way they're like thinking about how they're preparing and they're going and gathering from other hives. Often they're gathering from hives or stealing from hives that are weaker, smaller, mm -hmm something may be wrong in that hive and they are robbing it so that they will have enough 
honey and food for winter. And I had, I had never experienced this. Um, and then it, I think it was two years ago in October, I, um, started to experience it and it was terrible, <laughs> horrific. Um, the sound in the bee yard was alarming. And of course the bees were, um, robber bees can be louder. And so it almost looks like the hive is swarming when in fact there, there are robber bees that are all over the hive and there's a frenzy. Um, and I have deep compassion for the honeybees and the fact that they're there aren't enough resources and humans have disrupted the ecosystem such that bees are going to take from other bees. Like they don't have what they need. So no, I just want people to know that listening. I'm calling them robber bees for context so people can understand, but they're hungry bees who need enough food and humans have interfered and made this difficult. And that was happening. And I tried all of these different things and um, I was going to move the hives to a friend's house because I couldn't stop the robbing and it was, I was losing sleep. I mean, it was very disruptive to my nervous system, to the honeybees. I was concerned. And then I had an idea to combine two hives, the two that were being robbed so that they would have more bees and could defend themselves. Um, which was fascinating. Like, and it's, it's in the epilogue because we heal together is about how we come into community. And I had never combined hives before. And so I didn't, know what I was doing. I mean, I did a bunch of research and talked to a bunch of people, but like I was going to engage in this thing I'd never done before to try to save this, these two hives. And I knew the only way that they would survive other than moving them. And I really didn't want to do that um, was to combine these two hives. And that's what I did. Um, I put them together. Um, there's a whole process you have to go through to do that. And a week later I checked on them and um, they, there were, I mean, they were thriving. There were so many honeybees, right? And, and um, the um, robbing had quieted a bit and that hive made it through that winter, mm. um, which they would not have. They just wouldn't have, they didn't have enough bees and resources. Um, and in fact, they made it through winter with two queens in one hive, which is also another magical thing that does not happen very often, but because I combined them and I didn't kill one of the queens, they ended up living in the hive together through the season and through winter. Um, and um, I, I feel like it's so fitting for We Heal Together that that was going on as I was working on this. Like this is, <laughs> hey y'all, the only way is for us to be in this together. They it's were the only together. Way, yeah, it's the only way they could respond to what was happening to them. And so I think this is the only way we can respond is, is as we started with, to remember we belong to each other, we're kin, we're connected, and to practice, you know, what the honeybees do, which you spoke to the communal ways of being, which are centered on collective care um, and, and caring for one's, one's hive, which we are all each other's, you know, we're all part of that, that hive. So that's a little of the story. Yeah, well, thank you. So unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time together. So in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? Um, I feel like um, what I just shared about remembering um, the way we'll survive and thrive is in community is, is part of what I want to offer. And also to, to there's a lot of um, tenderness present uh, at this time, there has been. And I, I just wanna remind people to remember there is tenderness. Um, I don't, myself included, I don't always remember that people are reacting from a place of tenderness or something that's been unattended, you know, like, and I, I wanna invite myself and others to remember their own tenderness and the tenderness that's just like raw and fresh and and right there um, on the surface. Um, and that's helped me um, offer more loving kindness and to be in a place of compassion. So that's what I'll, what I'll offer. Mm. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. For listeners, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. Our guest has been Michelle Cassandra Johnson. She's the author of the book we've been discussing today, We Heal Together, Rituals and Practices for Building Community and Connection. You can find out more about Michelle's work on her website, michellecjohnson.com. She's on Facebook and Instagram at Skill in Action. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining me today on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to be in community with you. Again, for listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There is meditation online in the mornings at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoon at 4, and on Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word that means a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might also check out our sister podcast, the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Ellen Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. You can find that, a link to that on the csecenter.org website or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Kriya Yoga Today. There are also many other classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. And you can find out more at that website, csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I welcome back Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien to discuss how we can cultivate grace, gratitude, and generosity, the three essentials for a fulfilled life. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Bye.